This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Doesn't everybody smoke the same weed? I mean, isn't it? wrong with us are we psychopaths why do we like this stuff <laughs> absolutely yeah Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition, where we dive into classic pop culture and try to get behind the scenes and learn some interesting things. I'm here, as always, with Casey Shearer. Hello. What's up, man? And I'm Bill Siebold, and we're going to be talking today. Uh, this is a perfectly themed one because we're talking about something uh, that's very Halloween-esque. We're going to be talking today a little about Friday the 13th because we've interviewed Tom McLaughlin. Tom McLaughlin is a, is a director... He's a little bit of everything. He's a renaissance man. I think I called him that in the interview. Uh, he's a director of Friday the 13th, Jason Lives, one of my absolute favorite horror movies and definitely my favorite one of the Friday the 13th franchise. But Tom, sometimes he goes by Tommy, depending on the art that he's doing at the moment. Tom is a he's a musician. He's a, a, the lead singer for The Sloths. Uh, he's done a lot of different things, comedy. He's done uh, a lot. He's directed a lot of shows and and different programs. So he's a really interesting guy. What'd you think about the interview? I thought it was great. My favorite part of his career is that he was a mime. Like he was an actual mime. He studied this. With the best in the world. Wow. Have you ever tried miming? Have you ever been trapped in a box? Have you ever tried to pull? <laughs> You're doing it now. You're fantastic. You don't need the best in the world, Casey. Yeah, no, he, I've seen pictures of him online and he's, he really did own it. So he's, he's done comedy. He's done mime work. He's done rock and roll. He's done horror movies. Uh, he's done a lot of cool stuff. And, and the reason I've known him besides just being a, a character and a great storyteller in his own right, but I've been aware of him because that Friday the 13th that he made was my introduction to like horror movies. We talked a, a little bit about it and, and what he did with the, the Friday franchise was uh, he figured out a way to sort of resurrect Jason for the first time as a otherworldly being, which is kind of the Jason that we know him as now. So you're not that familiar with the Jason franchise. You're getting caught up now because I'm you getting, bought the new box set. I'm getting caught up. I bought the box set, all 12 movies with behind the scene features with uh, Tommy McLaughlin. And I think there's a booklet here uh, that comes with it. And I think there's some sketches that he's done or something uh in that i haven't dug into that yet but uh right. i'm looking forward to it. actually to be honest with you bill the only two friday the 13th movies i've ever seen are the very first one and number six jason uh what jason lives right yeah 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 jason lives uh only because i knew we were going to be interviewing tommy and i wanted to check it out before we uh interviewed him now you're playing the jason video game so yeah. you're you're starting to uh, be hooked. Yeah, just I'm like diving I in. When I was a kid and I was watching these things, like I didn't really 
understand how they all work together, but I'm just fascinated with the way that one director has passed the torch to another director and then, you know, and so on. Now we're all the way up to 12. I think we have 12 Jason movies now. Yeah. If you count the Friday, the, the uh, Freddy versus Jason one, I think we're up to 12. Yeah. And then uh, we also talked about in the interview too, which you'll hear in a, a minute or two, but there's a lot of fan movies that are, that are being made. And actually Tom and another one, another guy that's played Jason, have been in those movies. Uh, C.J. Graham, he was actually in Vengeance yeah, with Tommy. And then yeah. now a new one's out now that just came out. I think there's going to be four of them. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but they're short. They're only about 30 minutes long. It's called Never Hike in the Snow. Brand new. Just came out the other day. Never Hike in the Snow. And this is a Jason movie. Yeah, it's a Jason An unofficial movie. Jason movie. An unofficial Jason movie, and the, the lead character is Tom Matthews. Really? Who yep. played Tommy in part in Jason Lives, part six? Yeah. Yep. How about that? Yeah. So, I mean, this, I, I'm not sure what his character is in this movie. I Like I said, I haven't had time to check it out yet, but it's on the list of uh, after these 12 movies in the box set, I'll get to it. The fandom for this franchise is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a lawsuit right now. The writer of the first Friday, the 13th and um, Sean Cunningham, who is the director of the first Friday, the 13th. And basically he's been the, he's been the name that owns Friday, the 13th, you know, when they decided in maybe it was the two thousands to re kind of launch Friday, the 13th, they did a version called Jason goes to hell. When you get to this one, you're going to be like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you totally have decided that the regular format of Jason is no longer any good. We're going to have to get really weird with it. So I'm not sure. I'm curious what you're going to think about that. But that was, um, I remember that was interesting because that was uh, Cunningham's return to the franchise. He came and said, let's do something totally wacky and just kind of fucked it all up. And then he just didn't see Jason until Freddy vs. Jason. And that was kind of it until the remake. So all that stuff towards the end, I'm not a big fan of, but everything from like one to seven are so much fucking fun. And you actually watch Jason sort of go from being this human monster, like something real that you could see in the woods. You know, he was a a messed up dude kind of living alone in the woods. I don't know if he was sitting there eating bugs. I don't know how the fuck he survived. You know, maybe he was, maybe Jason knows how to fish. I don't know. But then, you know, finally it's like, we can't keep bringing this guy back to life. A normal human being can't just keep coming back to life. So Tom had the idea, well, he's been dead for a couple of years. Let's revive him. Um, not to give away, well, we'll talk about it in the interview. You'll see how he's revived if you haven't seen this movie. But but the revival of Jason brought him back as like a Frankenstein monster, as Tom would put it. That's how people know Jason now. So to me, Tom sort of revitalized and improved upon the formula. And that's the Jason I think people are really falling in love with, that monster. Not just the crazy killer guy, but the actual monster, the unstoppable thing. So... Yeah, I, I credit Tom for that. And I think uh, I think yeah, a lot of us Friday the 13th fans who love that version, we should be aware of Tom and Tom's contribution. Yeah, and uh, he's got some new things that he's working on also that uh, make sure you stick around for the whole interview because uh, he talks about the new stuff that he's working on. Which sounds really, uh, really, really interesting. So you want to jump into it, Bill? Yep, let's do it. Let's uh, do some plugs quick. Deluxeedition.show. Uh, find us on Instagram and Twitter at Deluxe Edition Pod and check our Facebook group out at Deluxe Edition, yet another pop culture podcast, The Group. And that's it. 
you know, and, and please, if you like our show, join our group because Casey's always surveying for questions to ask our guests. We want it to be collaborative. We love your questions. The guests, the guests love your questions so far. Um, so let's keep that going. Join our group. A lot of shenanigans in there, Casey. A lot of shenanigans. <laughs> All right, let's roll. Hey, Tommy, thank you for coming on to our show today. I'm a big fan of yours, and, and I know you were basically born into the entertainment business. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and everything that you've done, everything that gets you excited about being in the entertainment world. All right. Well, first off, thank you guys for having me on. I think, you know, your whole format, what you do is just really cool. So, um, you know, feel very honored to be here. My background, yes, uh, very eclectic, starting with I was born to a fire eater magician who went to USC film school. So I kind of had a childhood that was, you know, being a filmmaker, um, cause when I was seven, I kind of snuck under the fence at the old MGM studios with my friends and we made little eight millimeter movies. And then my dad taught me magic. So I would pay for the films by doing magic shows for other kids, you know, their parties and whatnot. And it wasn't, Long before, once I got to be about 12 or so, the Beatles hit. And suddenly all that went away and it was all about being a rock and roller. So from then on, it was like, you know, through the 60s, it was opening for the doors and Iron Butterfly and all those, you know, bands. And it was incredible time to be doing rock and roll in Los Angeles on the Sunset Strip. So, you know, it, it kind of took me away from the, you know, film and kind of magic. But once I became a filmmaker, then, of course, the magic came back in in terms of the illusions and things. And then what it was 45 years later, the rock and roll came back. So it's, it, you know, it's kind of been this kind of strange, you know, where I started kind of ended up, you know, where I went back to again. So what brought you into the world of Friday the 13th? That came about because... You know, I'm a, obviously a huge horror fan. I was trying at that time to, you know, see if I could get my next job. I made a low-budget independent film or a film called One Dark Night that had uh, Meg Tilly in it kind of before her career took off. And she was terrific. Everybody, in fact, in that cast was great. And it was, uh, you know, kind of that was my calling card. I went around town with the film cans and, you know, would drop them off and, you know, please look at my movie. And things just weren't coming as fast as you know, I had hoped. And part of that was that we were kind of in that world of slasher movies. That's what, you know, people were really looking to make. You know, give me a force, give me some girls, give me a guy with something over his face and a knife, and you had a picture. And so I was avoiding that until, you know, I was sent set up on a meeting with my agent with Frank Mancuso Jr. on the next Friday the 13th. And I kind of went, you know, I, you know I, I saw the first one. I haven't seen all the other ones. So I'm not necessarily the best person to do this. And he goes, well, he really liked your film. So at least go in and, you know, talk. So I went in and I, you know, and I said, you know, I would, I, I'm curious about this, you know, but, uh, my feeling is, is I'm going to do something like this. I would love to have a sense of humor because at that time I'd just written this film called Date with an Angel. And I was very much into the Frank Capra, you know, fantasy, you know, world romantic comedy. And Frank said, well, look, all that we want is somebody to bring back Jason. I don't care how you do it. 
and you know how you want to do the movie itself. You know, if you want to put humor in it, just don't make fun of Jason. I said, no, no, I won't. You know, like, and and I said, well, the first thing I got to do is start at the first Friday and go all the way up to part five. And they gave me a, a you know a, a little projection room at Paramount to sit there and watch them all back to back. And I made notes and I, you know, first I looked for the, you know, is there any mythology here? And is there things that make sense? And, you know, every film sort of kind of jumped a little bit in terms of where it left off until they got, you know, closer to the end. And, you know, I thought, okay, I got a, a sense of, you know, kind of what, you know, the story is. And, and I wanted to keep that whole idea of going back to, you know, where it all started. And I went to the cemetery next door to Paramount, which is now Hollywood forever and wrote this treatment. And I wanted the characters to be likable. I wanted to add things that, you know, that hadn't been in any of the Fridays you know, since I watched them all, you know, which was little kids, car chase, you know, the motorhome thing, underwater fight, you know, and then try to make it like where there's just a little bit of satire, you know, not mocking it, but just having sort of that fun, like when the grave digger, you know, breaks the fourth wall and says, some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. Some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. And again, that was a joke at us and kind of a joke to the audience too. And, you know, we, we, you know, we went into this thing based on my treatment and I wrote the script and kind of, we, you know, we were off to the races and Frank was incredibly supportive. I think maybe two or three times, you know, he had, something that he wanted to do, like the teaser that they put into the theaters with going towards the gates of, into the cemetery and the coffin coming up, you know, that was, you know, Frank's concept. And then uh, he came to me after seeing my rough cut uh, and he had heard I put an Alice Cooper song in there. And he said, you know, what do you think about Alice Cooper doing a song for that? I said, God, that's fucking incredible. And then, you know, ended up getting three songs, you know, from Alice uh, again, you know, because Frank saw that. And then, Finally, after we've screened it for an audience and they just went, I mean, apeshit. I, I, I couldn't hear anything. The, the noise, it was like a roller coaster ride that never stopped. And when it was over, I said, I don't know. I don't know if anything worked or whatever. And Frank said, oh, yeah, no, it worked great. We need three more kills. And I said, well, I, I got 13. I was trying to hold on to, you know, and he goes, doesn't matter. We need three more kills. <laughs> so we decided since we didn't do Jason's father, which is, I initially had intended for the ending, but again, that was the thing that Frank said, look, people were really pissed off that Jason, you know, wasn't in the last one. It was somebody impersonating him. And then they saw it look like it was going to be Tommy Jarvis. that was going to do Jason. We can't let anybody think the next one's going to be about Jason's dad. So we have to take that out. So I had obviously the cemetery caretaker I can kill and then kind of introduced a couple, you know, that were out, out uh, he was proposing to her and we shot that all actually in Los Angeles you know one night and then and so that you know that went into the picture too but you know Paramount you know were, were really supportive on everything and I guess the thing everybody more than anybody else me were shocked that we actually got decent reviews I mean nobody called it you know the next Terminator or the you know anything really cool but they said, you know, it's really hard to hate a picture that's making fun of itself. And and this, of course, was, you know, before the screen had come out. So this this kind of approach was a little bit different. So that actually helped us on, you know, the actual reviews that it got. 
but we were still suffering the pains of people who um, didn't want to come back to the next one. Uh, so the box office, you know, we came in number two that week as opposed to the usual number one. But then again, it was the second week of Aliens, and people just loved that, and they would blame them. I went to Aliens myself that weekend. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was just kind of a, you know, sad thing that, you know, the box office wasn't as good. But as the years have gone on, I'm really amazed that, you know, we still have this incredible following. And it seems like every generation discovers the movie. And it's sort of the gateway, <laughs> the gateway uh, film into the series. If you hadn't seen one before and you're sort of going, oh, I, I don't know. This is the one people tend to show because it's it, it's a less gory, you know. It's got a sense of humor, you know. The characters are likable. We had a great cast, so um, you know that's kind of the, the whole thing in a one long nutshell. There, yeah, no, it's great. Um, I remember this is the first one I saw, and I was young. It came up on HBO, and I was hooked. I was like, oh, this is what that Friday the Thirteenth is. And then when I went back and started studying the others, and um, you know, I saw Part Three, I thought. This is terrifying. Like I was, I was so shocked how different they kind of were. I was more attracted to your style of storytelling and filmmaking. There seemed to be a, a more of a tongue and cheekness about it. You know, I, I tend to think when I'm watching '80s horror, there's a little bit of comedy in that. It's kind of fun to be scared. So yeah. your movie was sort of in, playing to the fun of being scared, and you took some chances in. And maybe I'm going to ask you about that if they were considered chances by you, but you took chances. Uh, you, you did things that weren't done before. So you mentioned earlier, actually having children in the movie that scared the hell out of me, but it was the only movie where Jason actually walks up to a child and you don't know what he's going to do. Yeah. Um, Frank had no problem putting anything like that. in. He, you said he didn't mind the humor. He, did he, did he feel that it was a different type of entry than the previous and he wasn't concerned at all? Yeah. He, I mean, I was the one that was worried. Having watched them all, I thought, you know, it's not as nasty, you know, as some of them, um, particularly part five, you know, it had a real kind of nasty edge to it. I personally love four the most. You know, I thought Joe Zito did a great job with that. I, you know, I like the characters. I like all the things there. And I was also trying to make it look a little more like a movie, movie, you know, uh, so it's not just sort of low, low light lit and, a little grainy and gritty. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, <laughs> I had a conversation one night with Quentin Tarantino and Quentin says, you know, I really like yours. It's really great and everything, but my favorite is part five. And I said, that's interesting. A lot of people don't like it. And he goes, no, everything that people don't like is exactly what I liked. You know, it, it's got all the gore and the sex and all that, you know. And I go, okay, you know, that means he likes that grindhouse, you know, approach to it. And I think Frank felt that I was going to, you know, go as I did with my first movie, a little more gothic horror, you know, the lighting, the kind of, you know, dark shadows. And, you know, I really, I really designed the movie so that if you took the color out, if you watched it in black and white, it would actually look really cool because I was going for that, you know, universal horror movie look that I loved, you know, as a kid. And then I just felt like, you know, the introdu introduction of the kids was something that to me it was necessary. It seemed like, you know, again, the cliche was, you know, this always happened before the camp opened. And and I thought, why not you know, let the audience go, oh shit, he's not gonna break those kids, is he? And then that moment between Jason and that little girl uh, playing uh, Nancy Ann, 
it, 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 for everybody, it's kind of a different thing. You know, was he feeling like, him, you know, like what it was like to be a kid at camp, you know, where he died? You know, was he just curious because she just wasn't running or scared, you know, in the way that other people were? Obviously, the sex thing didn't play into that in any way, shape, or form. And it was, to me, a chance to kind of go for that, you know, that young when you're a kid, you know, that first thing she does when he leaves is she looks under the bed to see if he's hiding under the bed. So it's just, I wanted to kind of harken back to kind of the, you know, just the basic fears that you have as a kid. I never thought kids were going to see this thing, you know, but as the years have gone on, you know, it's like they come up, they come up to me at these conventions, you know, the little, you know, tiny kids with the mask on and everything. And it's like, you know, Jason and Freddie and all these you know, monsters from the 80s are like Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, you know, but for that particular generation. So I have to say, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, I was part of that 80s monster period because uh, there were some really, you know, great things that came out of there. But we didn't think it at the time. You know, we just thought we were, I thought I was going to make this Friday, it was going to go on, it was play a little bit the second weekend and be gone and forgotten. It just never conceived that this thing would would build and have you know the the continued love and devotion to the series as it does. Yeah, what a time for the lawsuit too. I, I'm not totally following everything with the lawsuit. All I know is we haven't been able to get any official Jason Voorhees anything. Yeah, because the writer uh, and 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 John yeah directed and produced them. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really awful situation because. It's not like, because people go, oh, come on, just divide up the money and, you know, let's get on with it. There's more to it than that. You know, I, Sean just really hates the fact that, that basically the decision was made, which is Victor Miller gets the title Friday the 13th. He can make movies called Friday the 13th, and he can remake the first one, but he cannot use the mask Jason. You know, that happened after him. So Sean is able to do that. And I think... If I remember, I think Sean can actually make a Friday the 13th, but in Europe only, not in the States. So as far as Sean was concerned, you know, he was going to appeal and see if he can get all the rights. And I don't know what he feels that Victor's going to get. So the, the question is, you know, what is going to be the compromise? And here we are. I don't know what it has been, eight years now or something this thing is, is going on. And um, the only thing I have to say that has been amazingly cool is that we have a whole new kind of cinema that has happened. You know, we look at this period where fans basically wanted the type of movie that they weren't getting. So it's like, fuck it. We're going to make it ourselves. We're going to pay for it. You know, we're going to have other fans pay for it. We're going to, you know, write, direct it. Everybody on it's going to do it, uh, you know, do the different jobs. And, you know, I was part of Vengeance, which was, you know, great fun to get to do a, a scene with uh, C.J. Graham and myself. And, you know, they asked me permission to use the Jason's dad thing. And I said, absolutely. You know, I, I didn't use it, run, run with it. And, I, you know, the, the trailers and some of the ones I've seen are really, you know, really good. And, uh, you know, some not, not as much. But in general, they really are trying to make as professional a movie as they can. And it's a great calling card for people as directors, actors, and to be seen. Obviously, it's only going to be on the internet, but but still, it was giving people a chance to see another Friday the 13th, see Jason doing things you hadn't seen him do before. So, you know, from that standpoint, 
It's the one thing that kind of, I don't think has ever happened in the history of movies where the fans of the movies actually started making them themselves. Yeah. Maybe Star Wars. That that could be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, I mean, I don't know if any of them came out like a 90 minute movie, though. Did any of the Star Wars face? Oh, I don't know. Did ben- So Vengeance is a fan made movie, which I've seen. I forgot you and CJ do cameo in it. Yeah. I didn't realize that was actually released as a uh, as a as a movie that way. Yeah, and the one coming out on is it on Friday the thirteenth or something? No, I think it's on Halloween, Voorhees. I haven't seen it yet, but I saw the trailer and that's a full movie. Deborah Deborah Voorhees, who was in part five, she produced a movie with almost every cast member she could get a hold of playing parts, uh, which is called uh, Fanboy Thirteen. And she just kind of danced around the Jason stuff, but still, you know, providing kind of a, you know, horror movie with the cast from all the different Fridays in it. And so, you know, again, who ever, you know, does that and, you know, dra- you know, gets money from fans to support it. And so the, at the credits at the end, there's a gazillion people that all get their name up there, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you know is is well. It must be legal to be able to take a character that you don't own and make these great movies. I mean, it, Vengeance was a lot of fun, but I is it legal? Is it okay to no. just take the name? No, 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 no. Uh, you know because why? Why they can get away with it is because at the moment nobody owns it. You know, Paramount let the, the licensing and stuff go to New World, and then New World and uh, not New World, New Line. New Line and uh, Warner Brothers, you know, collaborated, and then they did the one that Michael Bay produced. So they they're still like a kind of a ownership over there. Once the rights have been worked out between Sean and Victor, so in the meantime, these guys are getting away with this, you know, and they and they basically have two two ways kind of around it. The one to put disclaimers that this has nothing to do with the Friday the Thirteenth series, you know. Nothing to do with Warner's, not the New Line or Paramount stuff. And then any monies that they get goes towards making the movie. They're not paying themselves. And what's left over goes to like in vengeance, you know, to the children's hospital. And so everybody's kind of has these places to donate the rest of the, the money. So it kind of puts them in a position where it's like, boy, you're going to take the money away from the children's hospital if you get upset. But, you know, it, it the game, Friday the game, which was, you know, really fun to be a part of, too. As soon as those guys started making serious money, then suddenly Paramount came in and said, that's it. Because I, I was amazed that they were doing what they were doing uh, in the beginning and why nobody was saying anything. But it's sort of like that's the, the rule in this business. They're going to sue or do something. Somebody's got to be making enough money to make it worthwhile to go after them you know, and with the way these films are, it's like these guys got no money. I mean, it's not like you know, go and take away their apartment. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 silly. So, uh, you know, they they can kind of ride on this thing until obviously you know Paramount comes in and they'll probably give people a cease and desist or not Paramount or New Line or Warner's. I think that's it. I mean, like a slap on the wrist. But the movies are out there. You know, they're getting seen. They're going to do Vengeance 2 of Bloodline. You know, they're having me and CJ, you know, back again. And, you know, I'm looking forward to it. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I, hopefully they see it as helping to keep the fandom alive because it's it's what it's doing. Those fan movies are made by people that love this. 
stuff. And and that group of people that love, and you mentioned the game, that game was amazing. I know. I didn't know you were part of that, but that game, I would spend many, many hours, (laughs) more than I should, playing that game. It was such a great, fun, hide-and-go-seek type of game. Yeah. But it makes me love Friday the 13th more because it's so much fun to be immersed in that world. And Kane Hodder, you know, doing Jason in there, I mean, he was so violent. I mean, some of those kills, just, you would never get away with that in a million years in a movie. Um, you know, you could get triple X, you know, for that kind of violence. And just some of the clever things. I love they brought Tom Matthews in and, you know, I had the Tommy Jarvis character in there. Yeah, my involvement was the Pamela Voorhees tapes. They came to me and said, you know, we'd love you to write what happened when Pamela, you know, talking to the police the night that her son disappeared. And so I kind of used that. And I guess they were like Easter eggs, um, you know, you collected and uh, bits of all the conversation and then could put the whole thing together. But it gave me a chance to reintroduce my, my version of what Jason's father is and have, you know, Pamela talk about that. I don't want to spoil you know, if you haven't played the game and got to that level, what, what that information is. But it is something that, you know, I felt, you know, in terms of my mythology, you know, what I wanted to say about Jason's father. Yeah, I had no idea you were part of those tapes. Those fucking tapes are so hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> I think I found two, and that's about all I was able to find. So your version of Jason, I think, is a really important version because your version is really, I think, the one that most people kind of identify Jason as now people see him as this monster, this, this otherworldly type of, you can't kill this thing. What is it? Because you brought him back to life and you must've said, look, I can't bring this part two, part three, part four version back to life. Like it's, it's too impossible for a regular person to keep on coming back to life for no reason, but coming, you know, bringing him back as this otherworldly kind of zombie, that's the Jason that I identify with and think of when I think of Jason. And you really, you created that. Well, you know, the, the thing is, everybody, everybody says that, you know, here, here was the point when he was real. And then, you know, once Tom McLaughlin got in there, he's a zombie from now on. And I'm going, no, I never intended at least the term zombie. I mean, to me, zombies, what you know, George Romero you know, came up with. And they're, you know, they eat, you know, flesh, you know, you can only kill them, you know, by shooting them through the head. I purposely had a scene where the sheriff shoots Jason dead in the head and Jason's head goes back and then comes forward. You know, you can't stop this guy. It's, I was really thinking much more Frankenstein because I, you know, borrowed that device of the lightning bolt and that's what, you know, brought him back to life. And he is unfucking stoppable now and, and you know he's a force to be reckoned with and no matter what you do he's going to just keep on coming and to me that was very different than what you know I looked at what a zombie is but I think just the fact that he's dead and he's still walking it's still kind of for a lot of people falls into that category of, of zombie but I, as I said it was like to me a reanimated body <laughs> that just had this you know very limited desire to what you know, it was there to do. And in my Friday, I tried to have a little more of a story in that Tommy has an agenda. He he needs to see him down there. He's got a can of gasoline. He's going to, you know, burn the body and that'll be the end of it. And the the mask, he was going to burn as well. And then of course he fucks up and, you know, with the spear brings the lightning. And now Jason has an agenda. He's going to get Tommy. As far as he was concerned, he's nice and peaceful down there, you know, six feet under. 
And so both of these guys have things that they, you know, they have to play out. Jason kills anybody in his way trying to find Tommy. Tommy's got to figure out some way, you know, to not, you know, be in jail for you know, possibly killing these people to prove his point. So, I, you know, as I said, it has a little more of a story structure, you know, to it with the kind of the flip having the, you know, the, the girl be the one that ultimately, you know, ends him there, supposedly. But again, I, I just wanted to get him down back in the lake where all this first started and kind of tie in that mythology of, uh, yeah, that's what you do. You know, if you move the headstones and poltergeist and you don't move the bodies, it, you know, shit happens. So it's, it's you know, part of that whole thing about you, you've got to give the dead, you know, their time to rest. Yeah. So did anybody say... Did you have to run the ending by anybody? Did did Frank say, "Well, that ending, uh, we need an ending where we can start reasonably, uh, you know, start the next movie with some control"? Or did they say, "Go ahead, and make whatever ending you want in the next movie. We'll figure out our own way to to revive them." Is it thought through that much? Yeah, it was. I mean, every time they make these things, and this is what you know, kind of is the irony. You know, they start to believe, okay, that things are slowing down. There's so many slasher movies. I don't know if we're going to get the audience back again. So by the time they got to part four, they really had no intention of continuing. It was like, this is it. We're going to wrap it up here. But part four did so well. (laughs) They had to go, all right, you know, we got to have a new beginning. And so they went this direction that, okay, Jason's dead, but suddenly he's back. And then, of course, find out it wasn't really him. And, you know, Tommy is grown up and he's still kind of out of it from that confrontation with Jason. And then at the end, it sort of was left with he's possibly, you know, going to pick up, you know, where Jason left off. And are they, I don't know if they were thinking that was going to be, you know, just a swan song or they were hoping that that idea of bringing Tommy back you know, as now the murderer was going to work. But they found out in a big way it didn't. And normally the Fridays are always two years apart. They make one and then they wait two years before they come out with the next one. They kind of let people be a little hungry for it and stuff. After part five, they, they no fucking around. We're, we're doing this within a year. You know, we're getting this thing out. And I mean, opening up against Alien 2 wasn't to me a great idea, but, you know, you... you I, I just took it, you know, and said, you know, I'll I'll make the best movie I can make, and we'll see what happens. So the ending, yeah, it, it was really designed to end it with Jason down there, and you see, you know, that obviously that eye staring at you. And I, you know, definitely wanted to let people know he's down there and he's still alive, so that you go away thinking, okay, he's going to be back. We don't know when, and you know what I did recently. I wrote a script called Jason Never Dies that is my kind of sequel, but my sequel starts 13 years after where I left him in the lake. And 13 years later, which makes it 1999, in the way I do the math, because the movie came out in 86, that I'm picking up from that point, except we're doing it, you know, in the winter. You know, we're doing it with all females who were up in the Crystal Lake area, at a retreat, you know, all high school Catholic girls 
but they're all tough ass girls. I mean, they're at this retreat because they're all sinners. They're all, you know, badass, you know, from that period. And I also wanted it to feel still 80s, 90s in terms of the look and vibe. So I kind of like said, this is where I wanted to go. Not that I have any problem with part seven and what they did with the Tina character and all that. But, you know, that's to me, a, a, you know, kind of another way to do it in the way they wanted to resurrect Jason at that point. And obviously, the, you know, the series just kept going, you know, and, you know, we're up to, I guess, 12 now, I think. I think yeah, just, I think so. So something that they pretty much thought was over at four, you know, it's obviously stretched a long, long way. And I didn't know really what he asked me about doing the sequel you know, doing part seven. And I just, I said, I don't have any ideas. I kind of put everything I knew at this point into this. And he said, what about Jason meets Freddy? And I went, well, they two different realms, aren't they? Doesn't Jason kind of exist one place in reality, I guess, of sorts. And Freddy's, you know, he gets you in the dream realm and he goes, I mean, do you think you could do something with that? I said, yeah, I probably could. Well, let me talk to New Line. And he came back a week later and said, New Line's not going for it. So, um, you know, do you have any other ideas? And I went sort of jokingly, Cheech and Chong beat Jason. I mean, Paramount owned Cheech and Chong. And he laughed and, you know, and I said, I, I don't know. If I, if I could walk that line again of having the Cheech and Chong kind of humor and then still do the horror movie, it, it would be, you know, a challenge, but it could be funny and fun. And he went, you know, I, I just think, you know, if you're, Going to see a Cheech and Chong movie, you don't want to see the level of violence and stuff. You know, Jason, Friday the 13th, you know, and the same thing, the Friday people aren't going to want to do the Cheech and Chong humor. I said, I don't know. You know, doesn't everybody smoke the same weed? I mean, is the same kind of audience that goes, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, love it. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, but he felt that wasn't right, wasn't the right time for that kind of merge. So, you know, I, I went off and did other things for 33 years and then finally came up with an idea where there's a lot of different things that are in Jason Never Dies. I've revealed some of the stuff just recently. There's a lot of sketches that's going to be in that big box set that's coming out, I think, next week uh, from Screen Factory. So there's like 18 sketches of uh, and like storyboards of the, the way I'm envisioning this you know picture to be. And if you're a fan, there's going to be a lot of stuff that you're going to recognize. There's going to be an answer to something that I set up in Jason Lives that will be paid off, you know, in this one. And if you've never seen a Friday in your life, the movie will still work, you know, as, as an intense horror film. It definitely has some humor, but it's not the same as I did with Jason, uh, Jason Lives. I think it's uh, a great idea. I, I would love to see it. I think the franchise needs a bit of a retcon. I think it went a little south in most people's minds. I mean, the, the New York one <laughs> was like, oof. And then he went to space. It's like, well, that's jumping the shark. I kind of done it in New York as they initially planned, what Rob hadn't wanted to do. It might have been a different story, but I think the fact that it ended up being on the boat, you know, three-fourths of the time, uh, which again is a kind of a good claustrophobic thing. Where are you going to go? But People were being teased with the idea he's going to go to Manhattan and he's going to kick ass in New York. And they had some big sequences that they wanted to do, but I guess the money just wasn't there. Yeah, I heard they shot it in Vancouver because yeah. they couldn't afford to do at least a lot of shots in New York City. Um, so I, you said something I think is right. 
you would make this movie with the 80s, 90s tone. I wasn't a fan of the the reboot, the remake, whatever we're calling that one. Was it 2013 it came out? I can't remember exactly when. But it seemed a little too, like, Savage Jason. It seemed a little too scary, murdery. It didn't seem fun. Mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering, what would you have in your movie to sort of bring us back to the fun, the, the most fun period? Well, I am who I am. I mean, I, I have a, a mix of, obviously, great love of horror movies, classic horror movies. I love a lot of the things that have, you know, come down the pike over the years. The thing I really am frustrated at is audiences don't respond like they did in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s to the screen. You know, the noise factor and the conversations, you know, at the screen, you know, don't go in there. No, oh, God, you know, and people getting, you know, really, you know, really involved. You know, that's kind of gone away. And I don't know if it's just because... You, you know, we're watching far more television, seeing movies on DVD and Blu-ray and streaming now, and you sort of lose that thing of, you know, that group. And I made this next script. It, it, there is a lot of that same fun and in, in, in terms of trying to get the audience to react, you know, having sequences that, as I wrote it, I tried to the whole time envision I'm sitting in the theater and I'm watching this and would I have a great time with this? You know, to me, horror should be, you know, a fun time. You know, it's fun to get scared. At the end of it, you walk away go, that was great. I want to see this again. As opposed to leaving it on like a, you know, a note that just, eh, it's okay. You know, it's really hard to get a great ending on any kind of horror movie. I tried to give this one an, an incredible beginning, probably one of the most elaborate openings for a Friday the 13th ever in terms of what happens and what you see. Not something you could do with a fan film in any way, shape, or form. It's way, way too big. But still within the realm of what, you know, Friday should be. And I tried to give the ending that same kind of sense of, okay, this is over for now. We're, we kind of enjoyed what just happened. And, you know, now let's wait for the next one, you know. And in the middle, trying to make, again, the character's you, you care about the completely different character types than in Jason lives, but there's still that kind of dark humor, um, you know, between these, you know, these girls. And, you know, we have a, 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 an antagonist before Jason actually makes his appearance of this nun who's like the nun from hell. I was raised Catholic, so I've got all kinds of memories of nuns tormenting me. But, you know, I, I wanted to really kind of get have the story have a different kind of a fear factor in the beginning, us really enjoying what these girls do, particularly what they do to the nun. And then Jason arrives, and then, of course, it's just like pandemonium, and moments happen that I think that in a horror movie, people forget that when, you know, when you're hiding, the things that can happen, you know. And, you know, I just tried to put a little more, I guess it's just a sort of, you know, horror entertainment as opposed to like torture porn or some of the other ones that you were just making it as intense as possible. I just didn't find that as much fun as, as some of the movies that just, you know, kind of harken back to the old days. You know, It Follows, I had a great time with. I thought that was a fresh idea and they made it very much like a John Carpenter movie with the use of the camera and stuff. And I, I thought that was great because it really felt like, you know, the old times again. Um, but it was, you know, a new premise. Yeah. 
Let's talk about uh, character design for a minute. So since this is the first time that Jason came back as, you know, this new version, fans always want to see what Jason looks like under the mask. Yours was hard to see. And I always remember being kind of like, did they, did, did it still have the, the proper axe wound here and here? And, and now that I'm able to sort of see it a little bit closer with uh, Photoshop, you know, bring up the shadows, you really did pay attention to the old, uh, the, the past looks of Jason. Yeah. When you went to pick the mask, did you want to do something a little bit different? Because I think three and four were very similar. Five was different because it was a different Jason. They had the different colored chevrons. And yours was a little different too. Did you did you design it to be a little bit different or did you design it maybe to look better on CJ when he was running around? What? How did you come up with that design? I personally did not do the design. In my mind, it was basically exactly what you said. It should have all the, the slices in it and anything that occurred that could have some sort of effect on it. You know, I put the bullet hole in it, so there's one more hole at the top when you get shot in the head. I don't know if that continued or not. You know, I never really looked close enough to see. But the guys who were creating the mask and creating the, you know, the CJ's makeup and all that, they were the ones that said, you know, they want to, they want to do this a little different. They had their kind of desire to put their mark on it. So it's still a hockey mask and all that, but, you know, the shape, some of the things about it were a little different. And I think that continued after on the other ones as well. Of course, you know, the propeller chopping off, you know, part of the of the mask, you know, that, that kind of carried through on, on the films. The fact that he, you know, started to bloat so that, you know, he, the mask got tighter on his face. So everybody tried to, you know, put their own mark on it. But yeah, that that wasn't me saying no. I I specifically want this or that. I'm a little more specific on this next one though, because there's a, a few elements that we haven't seen before that I think could be really cool. With you know when Jason comes up 13 years later, so I've added some stuff, and uh, there's actually a guy designing it right now, and we're going back and forth in terms of all the details because there's very specific things this time that I want to put in there and I want it to be logical and real and yet creepy. I mean, creepy and, you know, like kind of aspect to it. Right. Like the, the maggots in his eyes when you first uncover yeah. them. Yeah. Okay. That kind of creepy. It is. I'm a big maggot guy. Oh, really? <laughs> so I understand filmmaking is, is a pretty um, collaborative process and it sounds like it was in, in your case too. Did you have people in the crew that really wanted to see this movie do well? Like you said, you had different designers come in and design Jason. Uh, as we've talked to people on the show, we find different levels of sort of collaboration. Sometimes it's the director says, it's my way or the highway. And I'm finding that the movies that I like the most are, the directors are usually a little bit more, bring your ideas, let's put them all together. One yeah. big pot of ideas. Yeah. Is that how your movie was like? Yeah, I had very, very specific things I wanted to do, but, I think you're absolutely an idiot if you think you've got all the best ideas you know, when you go in. If you hire the right people, and I've always believed you hire people who are more talented than you, or smarter than you, who know their craft obviously far better than you, and you benefit as a director from their talent. Plus, I, I'm a firm believer that you know, this isn't the director's movie, this is our movie. When I start to hear the crew you know, refer to it as uh, yeah, we need this for this. And, and it's not like, well, the director wants 
So I'm very inclusive and, you know, I give a lot of leeway with the actors. I wrote comedy lines, but if, you know, somebody like Vinny, who was playing, uh, you know, the deputy, the deputy in there, Rick, you know, I had a line like, you know, wherever the red dot goes. And Vinny said to me, how about if I add you bang, you know, and I went, that's great. Put it in. And of course, that's become sort of a great, you know, word for, for people to kind of hang on to over all these years. And, you know, it's the same thing. I got a DP who I really, you know, John was just terrific in terms of giving me that look of that, you know, gothic horror. And then, you know, he had these other little touches that, you know, he as a, as a camera person really understood far beyond me. And brought in old school lighting. We had the big arc lights that were lighting the forest, which gave it, again, a little more of a theatrical feeling to it. But you got to remember that there really wasn't like in the crews and stuff, a fandom yet, you know, with these things. It was a job. It was, you know, a Friday. We were hiding, you know, in Georgia, you know, shooting under the name Aladdin Sane, because Frank always put a David Bowie name for every production. And, you know, it was like just, you know, trying to hide from the unions and things, which why they, you know, went other places and, and shot, you know, in, in other states. And so the crew was fucking, you know, I had a great crew and we had, I mean, we really had a lot of fun, especially for a movie that was shooting all nights. And to me, it was about trying to, look, we don't know how the movie's going to come out. I'm hoping for the best. I'm trying to put everything I know into it. But let's at least enjoy the process. So of all the 42 films that I've made at this point, you know, that was the one that was the most fun. It, it really, I mean, we, we just, you know, the kills, all that stuff were like, yeah, you know, we were, we were enjoying it, but we had no idea if anybody else would. Yeah, I love the MO to work with people that are better than you and, you know, more creative. That's why Casey has me here. So totally get it. Um, <laughs> Was there anything in the script that you changed from the final product? Were you maybe going a different direction at any point? Not really. I always tell people, because I'm not plugging my book, but Joe Madre did a book on me called A Strange Idea of Entertainment, Conversations with Tom McLaughlin. And in there, it goes from birth all the way up to when I started teaching at Chapman University and working with new, young, up-and-coming filmmakers still doing the rock and roll career, still writing scripts and stuff. But it kind of, you know, that's kind of where I was like, okay, now I'm passing it on. And in that book, Joe came up with this idea of putting my treatment in the very back. So at the end of the book, you get the full treatment for Jason Lives. At that time, it was called uh, Jason Has Risen. And there was a feeling from, I don't know if it was from Frank or somebody, some other executive that, it sounds a little too much like Jesus has risen and it might piss off these people. And so, you know, come up with a different title. So, you know, Jason lives is what he came up with. And as far as the tone of it and kind of the sequences, everything is pretty much exactly if you read the treatment as is, except Jason's dad at the end, which we had to remove. And the one other thing that I myself took out from that was in the treatment is that when Jason got the utility belt from the, you know, macho paintballer guy, in the original treatment, these guys were not playing paintball. They were hunters out there. And Jason got this guy who had all his shit there, you know, on that belt. 
And he also had an Uzi strap across him. So when, you know, he's doing his pissed off, whacking away with the machete, and Jason grabs the machete and tears his arm off, you know, the next time we see Jason, we see he's got this guy's belt with the darts, you know, he's got the machete, and he's got an Uzi strapped across him. So in the motorhome sequence, when he comes out of that bathroom, he comes out blasting. So that whole thing was going to get shot up, you know, both you know, black actors are going to get, you know, riddled with bullets, and then the thing was going to crash. And I went, you know, that ain't right. It's like Jason, it's like a, you know, what, you know it's like when they invented the A-bomb. It's not fair. I mean, it's like, you, you know, if I go out there, man on man, you know, do it. And I felt like that's what Jason does. You know, all the kills are extreme. You know, nobody can turn ahead and pull it off or punch out a heart. And I tried to come up with stuff that was unimitatable. But this whole thing of, you know, shooting, it just to me didn't seem right. So I took that out and somehow came up with, I thought, you know, to me, one of the better kills with his taking Darcy's face and pushing it into the side of the motorhome and, you know, her face coming out on there. So, you know, it's, when you lose something, usually something that replaces it is better. What's wrong with us? Are we psychopaths? Why do we like this stuff? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think we don't worry about death or something. I don't know. It's, we just kind of look at it as entertainment. You know, it's the way of thumbing the nose at the Grim Reaper. Yeah, maybe it is. But you said, you know, what are your favorite kills? I'm like, yeah, that is a great kill. And I'm like, oh, that's not something I should really be saying out loud. One of the things I remember seeing uh, in an interview with you, the scene out in the, the final scene, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but there's a great lake scene and how it ends and, no, I'm going to spoil it for people anyway, because I can't ask the question without kind of doing it. So Tommy's on the boat. Jason's in the water, which is the most frightening thing, because I was already scared of Jaws. And now we have another Jaws-type creature that can seemingly you know, pop up anywhere. That whole scene, which is just big and scary to me, was filmed in your parents' pool. No, not exactly. Oh. They, it was actually filmed in three locations. One on the actual lake, you know, when Jason goes out there and Tommy's out in the boat you know, in the distance. And then anything where we start to get close, we shot at the USC Olympic-sized pool in Los Angeles, and we blacked the whole pool in. So all the stuff with the fire, you know, circled around him, the, the, the fighting, going underwater, the struggle, all of that was, was done there. The thing that USC would not go along with is us chopping him up and having that shit in their pool. So that's when I called up my dad, the USC ex-filmmaker, and said, Dad, do you mind? It could fuck up your pool filter. I don't know. You know, yeah, come on, Dad. You know. <laughs> so he loved it. He was in hog heaven to have a film crew in his backyard. He was going around with his little camera, taking pictures and stuff. And yeah, we fucked up his filter, but we paid for it. So that whole thing where Jason gets chopped up, yeah, that was you know, done in my, my parents' pool. Got it. I love I love hearing those stories. Have you ever been, and I don't know where it is, but there's a lake somewhere that there's a, a Jason at the bottom of the lake chained to the bottom, to the floor. Have, have you been to it? I think that's probably one of my biggest compliments I, I ever heard. I, that is, I would never think something like that would happen, where that whole image of having him chained down that I came up with, somebody actually recreated and has it down there, and only scuba divers can ever see it, you know, and go down and take a picture but I thought that was just fucking amazing. 
Yeah. One day I, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to swim down there. <laughs> I'm not sure I, I have the ability to even do that, but one day I'm going to try. I've seen it on YouTube. It is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of fan questions here. And actually, before we get into that, I, I have a question you were talking about when they asked you about writing a sequel, you had mentioned the Cheech and Chong thing. Yeah. You also mentioned that you were a fan, a big fan of the Universal Monsters. So were you thinking something along the lines of maybe like an Abbott and Costello meet and like maybe like a Cheech and Chong meet Jason or something like that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Because in the same way when he said to me, you know, Jason meets Freddy and I said, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And then I said, well, how about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein where, you know, Jason meets Cheech and Chong. You know, it's that thing of blending two separate monsters and putting them together, or a comedy duel and the monster. And, you know, obviously, Costello went on to meet, you know, the mummy and uh, the killer. And I mean, you know, I think there was a number of those things that happened because, you know, the first one, meeting Frankenstein, was so successful. Yeah, great movies. So uh, you already kind of answered a bunch of our fan questions, so we'll just sort of touch on them, and then we'll get into uh, what you're working on lately. Jason Schultz mentioned about the uh, with the F-13 lawsuit going on, why don't you write your F-13 sequel? What It looks like you already have. I have. It's, yeah, it's been done for, I guess, about a year now, and I, I literally wrote it before Sean Cunningham did the appeal or, had, or the appeal went forward. So I somehow thought maybe this is over and I can, you know, have the script ready to go, but Sean appealed and everything stopped. So I, you know, I've got the script. I have to see what happens when things finally get resolved. Maybe they don't want to, you know, even go with what I, what I want to do. You know, they may want to do another, you know, like follow the Jason storyline that they started in the Michael Bay one and do a sequel off of that. I, I have no idea, uh, you know, what they have planned. All I felt as both a fan and as the guy who did Jason Lives is, you know, I felt now there's other things that I can do that haven't been done and are still kind of staying within the rules of what a Friday, you know, I'm, I'm not taking Jason to another planet, you know, I'm not taking him to another city, you know, I'm not putting, you know, him in, you know, a jungle or a desert, you know, it's like, we're, we're back at Crystal Lake, except, you know, this time we're normally like what I did in Jason Lives and other filmmakers have done it too, is have Jason go into Crystal Lake at some point. This time he goes across Crystal Lake because it's frozen. So there's a chase that happens where the girl's trying to get away from him and she's doing the old cliche where, you know, I, the, the girl always seems to be tripping and slipping. Well, now it totally makes sense, you know, trying, you know, because he's just coming, you know, like, like steady as a rock. And, you know, she's just trying to get the hell off the ice. So, you know, it's making use of something that we knew from the beginning and just doing something different. That's also logical in the horror movie world of logic. Sure. All right. So uh, Kyle Patton wants to know, uh, and this is something that you mentioned earlier in the interview also, uh, why did you have the sheriff shoot him in the head? Yeah, it was because I just somehow thought that, that if there was any question about the zombie thing, I'm just going to kind of go for that rule. You know, you shoot him in the head. 
Uh, obviously, I was aware of Night of the Living Dead and all that, and he could have been looked at as a zombie. But as I said, I didn't call him that. And I sort of thought, okay, if somebody was thinking that in any way, shape, or form, this was the moment to kind of, you know, say, nope, that didn't work. <laughs> so there, there's really not a whole lot you can do to him to stop him at this point. Obviously, they, was it Jason Goes to Hell? They blew him up into a thousand pieces and, you know, his brain survived. And, you know, that's kind of where you're left, you know, trying to do some really extreme thing, you know, to stop him. But certainly not going to be, you know, a knife, a hanging or a gunshot. You know? All right. So we have another one here from uh, Kenny Regal. He wants to know what brand or type of machete did Jason use in your movie? I just said to the prop department, get me the biggest, the shiniest one you can get me, you know, because that I, I that moment when the little girl picks it up and, you know, it's all bloody and, and it, it almost looks bigger than life because that's what Paula thinks. It's like, oh, the, you know, these guys put fake blood on here and they're trying to scare us, you know, so that it looked a little extreme. Yeah, I wonder if he was a machete salesman, why he was asking that question. <laughs> Maybe he's got an affinity to certain machetes. How did you pick a... Uh... Well, when you're working on kills, are you sit- is there a meeting where you're sitting around saying, we got to come up with the greatest kills and these are the weapons we're going to need? I mean, how does that kind of come together? Yeah, I, I mean, I was completely on my own. There, you know, there was no discussion with a committee as there would be today, unfortunately, but, which makes making any movie difficult because all these, everybody's got a weigh in, everybody's got a pee on the tree to mark their territory. You know, it's like, isn't that, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, I wasn't in on any of these, but I'm sure there's conversations about, you know, I, didn't we see that in so-and-so movie? No, we can't do that. What if we do, no, you know, it's got to be more intense than that. We gotta, and they'll batter things around until they come up with something. But it's, I was really, really blessed to have like, you know, the auteur approach that what was coming out of my head was what I got up on the screen. And other than the addition of the, you know, three other kills, which again, I wrote and came up with how that was done. And I was frankly out of ideas of what else could be done. So I thought, okay, caretaker's got to be an alcoholic. So he's got to have a bottle with him. So Jason can ram that into his throat. And what you don't see very clearly is, you know, the blood just pouring out of the, you know, the end of the, or the mouth of the bottle, you know, that got kind of flipped a bit. And then with the couple, I thought, you know, I, I can't see doing one at a time and doing anything more than I already did. So, you know, I'll, I'll just skewer them like a shish kebab. And that'll be, that'll be it. Overdone, you know, and, and move on. So it's not that I'm particularly, you know, proud that this was like some, you know, great innovative thing. But I thought, well, we haven't seen him do two at once like that. We saw three heads go. And if we ever find that lost footage... The, what the effects guys did when those three heads went was amazing because you see the blade go through and you just see the heads go boom, boom, boom. And all we're left with after the MPAA ratings is just, you know, them on the ground, the heads on the ground. But they had an amazing effect of seeing those heads actually, you know, be sliced and dropped. Uh, it's, you know, there was a few things like that that unfortunately you didn't get to see in the final one. That sounds like a real pain in the ass, that MPAA. So if you actually took some time and sent the same thing back, do you get the same MPAA people? Because isn't it really just the opinion of the people that that are in the MPAA MPAA, 
who see it at that moment. They're the ones deciding what this should be rated and what should be cut out. Am I understanding that right? I, from what I remember, uh, there was like a committee as such. I don't know if it was five people, 10 people, I don't know, but they would watch the movie the first time and they would say all the things that bothered them. And so I'd get the notes back, you know, from Paramount. Okay, they don't like this. They don't like that. Well, I don't want to lose the whole sequence. Nah, just cut it down. Just take, you know, a little, take it down a little bit. So then we'd send it back. And of course, they would watch the movie just in those areas that they were bothered with. And I go, nope, that's still too much. You know, give it back again. Nine screenings, nine times we had to go and back. Because I wasn't going to give up you know, that easy without a fight. And the thing that was the weirdest is by the time we got to the ninth screening that they finally okayed, on the eighth one, they were bothered by the the kill where they I bend the sheriff's, you know, body back and, you know, you hear his spine snapping. And that to me was like an old gag that I did on the, the Dick Van Dyke series where I did a chiropractor sketch and we took Dick, who, uh, who had fallen behind the chiropractor table and Tommy Smothers and the, the assistant kind of took Dick and did this with him. So his leg went back and, you know, we just had two people, you know, for that. And I said, you know, I'm going to steal from myself here and use that, but make it horrific. And I went, why are they picking on that? There's not a drop of blood. And they said, well, it's a cumulative effect. By the time we get to that kill, we've seen so much that we don't want to see anymore. So, all we did was take out one cut or two cuts back and forth so that kind of pulled down some of the intensity, but it still works. You know, I don't think we sacrificed that much to that effect. Yeah. I mean, it feels like they kind of mess with your art. That's got to be a little frustrating and it costs money to, to film this stuff and then just have it cut out. Do you have to pay to get the MPAA to do a screening? Did they do nine screenings on their own or did you have to pay them to do that? You know, I don't know. I, again, I don't kind of work at that level. I just know it's mandatory that you have to get a rating. And if they look at it and they say it's X, studios are like, look, we can't release an X-rated film. We're cutting out a huge part of the audience. And I mean, even if it's R, the kids still find a way to sneak in. That didn't matter that much. But just in terms of their exhibitors and stuff, they don't want to have an, you know, the next movie in there. So we had to placate them in some way. And this was again at a time in the eighties where there were so many, you know, incredibly intense sequences that were being done. The makeup effects had just gone through the roof of what was possible. So they, they looked at this movie, you know, as a lot of the critics did. I mean, one of my favorite reviews was, you know, for those of you guys that, you know, even remember, or, you know, maybe weren't even around when these guys were out, but Siskel and Ebert had a show at the movies or something. And, you know, it started small and then it just became this huge kind of national show. And these guys had a thing for horror movies, particularly splatter movies, and really particularly Friday the 13th. So when it got to the review on Jason Lives, they go, well, here we are, you know, <laughs> another Friday the 13th. And you got the mandatory kills. I don't know how many of them I lost count. And of course, you know, you see, you know, these women and guys get all chopped up. And I mean, it's the same thing. We've seen it. We've seen it. We've seen it. Right, Gene? Yeah. In fact, we didn't even watch it. 
we knew what it was going to be. Why even sit there and subject ourselves to that? So again, big thumbs down. You know, did he even watch the fucking movie? You know, if they had seen it, they might have, you know, actually said, well, at least they're having fun. Or they're, you know. So we got <laughs> thumbs, two thumbs down wow. and, because they didn't watch it. And they really admitted they didn't watch it. Yeah. I mean, that was their way of saying, this is so bad, we're telling you, even we're not going to watch it. So don't you. Wow. Crazy. So after 34 years since the movie has come out, do you ever get tired of talking about it? You know, I would think I would, but I don't. Um, Part of it is you guys and everybody else who are fans have such a love for it. I mean, to me, if I could sit down with James Whale and talk about Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, I'd be, you know, going crazy. I mean, it was like the, that would be the ultimate, you know, or Todd Brown even did Dracula. You know, that was like the stuff that just really, you know, influenced me and I just loved and knew every line in it. And I just think if you're a fan of this and you can sit there and quote back, you know, things from the movie and stuff, I go, what am I going to say about that other than that's a huge compliment and I love to continue to talk about it. If there's anything more I can say, the big box set that's coming out from uh, Shout Factory in, in a week or two, I've got three, count them, three commentaries on, you know, Jason Lives because three times I did, did it again. So you can hear all three of those and you can hear CJ talk about playing Jason and you can, you know, hear the editor talk about editing. There's, you know, and that's with all the movies. There are so many bonus features and extras. You know, you guys are going to be watching this shit for a year, you know, to get through everything. But it's great. If you're a fan, it's certainly the definitive, you know, box set with all the bells and whistles. Nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I have it uh, pre-ordered, so it's, uh, I'm not sure when it's supposed to arrive, but it should be here soon. Yeah. Yeah, they actually sent me a box, so I, I've already started digging in. And, nice. Uh, it looks great. It looks That's awesome. You know, Shout Factory really knows how to put out a good product. And, uh, yeah, it's very cool to look at this thing and all the movies there and then the, you know, extra features on one whole disc with, you know, they just got stuff you wouldn't have thought of that you suddenly go, yeah, I'm glad they included that. You know, that's really cool. <clears throat> so did I hear you say that you worked on the Smothers Brothers? No, I, uh, when I was doing the, uh, I was hired to write and direct comedy sketches on in the mid-70s, Dick Van Dyke had a series called Van Dyke and Company. And every week there would be a guest star. So I got to direct Carol Burnett, Sid Caesar, Chevy Chase, and Tommy Smothers was a guest. So, you know, the, you know Lucille Ball, you know, directing her was, you know, for, what was like 26 or something at that time. It was very intimidating, but, you know, she listened and it was, it was great. But yeah, that, <clears throat> it was a, a sketch that, as I said, I got the idea there for the bend back. And I, you know, kind of use that, you know, for, uh, for the sheriff. Film. So let's get into, uh, you mentioned a couple times your band, you have a band. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So, uh, All right. you, yeah, this is, this, well, first off, I'm going to start off by saying to all you guys, don't give up your dreams. If you've got a dream of any sort, you have a passion for it. If it's not happening on your watch as quick as you want it, don't give it up. Because in my case, the thing I was doing as a teenager, as a rock and roller, and that's what I wanted to be, is the next 
Mick Jagger, the next James Brown, the next Roger Daltrey. I, you know, that was like my passion. And I got kicked out of seven high schools because my hair was just touching my ear. I mean, it wasn't even like long compared to like the way it is now, but you couldn't have long hair at that time period. And I wouldn't cut it because I was in a band. And you were in a band and you performed Girls Scream. And you, we love to feel like we were the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or, you know, those English groups that we idolized. So that became, you know, this passion that I really wanted to have, you know, fulfilled. And by the time we got to around 69, everything kind of soured. The, the rock and roll music, the rhythm and blues bass that formed that we were using, all that went away to pure, like, psychedelic sound, you know, the San Francisco sound, the, you know, the improving and all that. Charles Manson hit L.A., if I went into a restaurant, they took a look at me and, you know, another hippie killer, get the fuck out of here. I mean, <laughs> you know, cars would pull up, guy would roll down the window, hey, hippie, and they'd spit at you. And I was going, but this is not good. Yeah. And then the phone had Altamont, you know, where the Hells Angels, you know, beat this guy to death. Yeah. And it was like the whole love generation thing suddenly started to fall apart in 69. And that's when I said, you know what, I still want to be a lead singer, but I want to learn some other craft, so I'm a more physical performer on stage. And I that led me into going to study mime in Paris for a year at, when I was 19 with Marcel Marceau, who obviously is like, you know, the guy for, for learning that kind of stuff. So the, when I came out of that, I started doing comedy. I realized, no, I, I love to make people laugh. So I kind of gave up, you know, the rock and roll dream to, to do comedy. And, you know, I, that's what I wanted to do. So I had a group called the LA Mime Company. We did performances all over the place. We got on Don Kirshner's rock concert series and the Dick Van Dyke thing. And then cut to, you know, after 40 something films, you know, I get a phone call from a private detective. And this was, this was 2001. Yeah. And the guy that was in this band, the Sloss, with us, hired this private detective to find all of us because this 45 record called Making Love that couldn't be played in 65 because that title, Making Love, was too controversial. And so the, you know, the thing just sort of disappeared. Well, that little 45, one of them sold on eBay for 6,650 bucks. And so these music you know, magazines you know, so, you know, who are these guys? You know, are they still alive? Well, two of the guys that passed on and, you know, the, those of us that were left did these interviews and stuff. And in kind of a joke, I said, why don't we get together in a garage like we used to? I mean, we were a garage band. Let's, let's, you know, let's just see, you know, what happens. I had not sung. I had not played harmonica. You know, one of the guys had not picked up a guitar. And we just started the jam. Every Wednesday night was boys' night, and you know, we'd play in this garage. And one thing led to another where we started to perform. We got on YouTube, we got more shows. Record company, you know, asked us to do an album. So we did an album, we put it out on vinyl because we always wanted to have a vinyl record, you know, which was starts the thing at that, you know, back in the day. And, you know, we've done a number of music videos uh, as well as touring. We had a whole tour set up for this summer, which of course was killed because of the pandemic. And it's, I'm up there just knocking myself out. I'm performing far harder than I did at 16 
at my age because I just love it. And when I'm up there, I go, I never thought I'd ever be able to do this again. So like I said at the beginning of this thing, don't give up your dreams because I didn't expect in my fucking 60s I'd be a rock and roller again. But it, it's it's still great. Maybe it's even greater because you had to wait so long to get it. But um, yeah, that's kind of you know the, the sloss, the rock and roll story. But you guys can go on YouTube, just look up the sloss, the band. You can kind of see the other side of my personality. And um, we have a website, uh, uh, thesloss.org. So you can again kind of you know get a little more details of, of the band. Yeah, you are the definition of a renaissance man. Somebody said, you know, you're like Forrest Gump. You always seem to have been doing things that somehow, you know, happened. Like when I chose to do mine, nobody even heard of the word. I didn't even hear of the word. And then suddenly there was this whole sort of emergence of like mimes everywhere in parks and things. And then we got to Tootsie and, and uh, Dustin Hoffman pushed that mime over and everybody cheered. I went, okay, that's the death of mine. There it is. <laughs> People hate these guys. So we're out. But I was at Monterey Pop Festival. If you watch the documentary, you'll see my stone face staring, watching Jimi Hendrix for the first time, all of us, Janis Joplin, Otis Reddy, all these people. And so again, it's like, you were at Monterey Pop? I go, I just happened to be there, you know? So it, there's just a number of things that, you know, hanging out with Jim Morrison at the time, no big deal. Going to uh, the house where they're shooting, Hendrix was shooting, um, uh, not, uh, what, uh, what was it? The, the first big hit? Um, <clears throat> blanking. Um, first Jimmy Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, sitting in a room, you know, with all these guys and somebody else was up jamming and stuff. And I get tapped on the shoulder and I turn and it was like, you know, a joint. You know, I took it and I looked and it was Hendrix. Hendrix <laughs> had to be this thing. And of course, I sat there going, do I keep it? You know, what, you know, the guy next to me is like, hey, come on, pass it, you know, and it, it was just, again, one of those moments where it's like, holy shit, you know, you smoke dope with Hendrix? I said, well, I technically didn't because I was in so awe that he handed it to me. I didn't. But there's been just all these kind of weird things that, that keep kind of, you know, happening as the years go on that I go, well, this is sort of my life. I, I, the roads just keep kind of going off in, in different directions. That's incredible. That's um, awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, we could probably do a second show. I could come up with a million more questions for you, but I'll let you go. Maybe before we leave, you could recap some of the things that you want our, our audience to uh, know about, the things that you're working on. All right. Well, you know, obviously, the, the Jason uh, Never Dies script, you know, I would love everybody's support if it gets down to that point where I need, you know, somehow – you know, the fans to rise up and say something. We want to see this movie. I don't know if it'll ever get to that point, but we certainly love that. Um, writing a new horror script, which I'm very excited about because it isn't caught up in some rights or whatever. It's totally mine. And it's uh, going off in a kind of a different direction of, uh, well, let me just give you the title. It's called Dawn of the Dogs. So if you take that basic concept, you go, Dawn of the, and put dogs instead of dead, I think you got a little idea of kind of what I'm sort of using as the basic premise, but it's, it's not zombie dogs. So, you know, take that out of the equation, but it is something very different and very intense. 
So I'm, you know, working my way through that at the moment. And then these guys came to me with this series, like a reality show series called The Cemetery Man. And they want, you know, I've already done like the trailer for it. And the idea is, you know, I'm kind of in this whole kind of goth outfit and I'm the cemetery man who takes you to cemeteries all over the world and talks about how people celebrate the dead or how they memorialize them or you know, is the dead really dead? You know, is, is, is there an energy that continues on that we see as ghosts and, and so on? So it's like me trying to explore that world at the same time, you know, kind of giving respect to people that are buried there and some of their stories, whether they're celebrities or just, this was a really amazing person, you know, and, and we give a little bit of, you know, background about them. So again, it's a very unique type of series that these guys, these producers are beginning to take around now. So that's going on. And then in Tampa, there is going to be a anthology series called The Black Veil. And it is kind of put together with a number of different horror filmmakers. And uh, it's uh, Dan Merrick and Jeffrey Reddick. You know, Dan obviously did Blair Witch. Jeffrey did The Final Destination. Danny McBride, who was involved with the uh, Underworld. So we're all doing like half hour segments for this. And of course, the pandemic stopped us and we're waiting for that to calm down so we can all go and shoot our sequences. But it's really, you know, cool to be part of a, you know, a group of guys like that. They're really, they're really great. And in the meantime, we're doing a film festival called Quarantined Creep, uh, Creep Fest. And any of you guys who want to make like a minute or two minute horror film short, we're going to watch it. We're going to judge it. It's like a thousand dollar first prize and a huge kick-ass camera package. And then I think it's, you know, $500 and 250 for the second and third prize. But it's a chance to create something, you know, get it seen and then hopefully, you know, win that prize. So we're sort of doing that in the meantime as we wait out the pandemic. Yeah. Wow. That's great. You have a lot going on. It's yeah. I, I feel very, very blessed that I, you know, I went from a huge depression for the first two months of going, what do I do to just start, you know, churning the, the coals around and suddenly fire starts to happen. But you, you just can't give up or give in. You know, you just have to say, all right, if somebody gives you lemons, make lemonade, man. I mean, don't sit there with the lemons, do something. You know? So it's kind of been, you know, my whole mantra my entire life is just keep doing it. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks, Tom. We had a great time talking to you. It's an honor to talk to you. You definitely left a <laughs> pretty big mark on me. So it was great to finally meet you. And Thank thanks you. again. We're, Thank we're definitely going to be watching. Can't wait to see what you do next. Great. Thank you, Take Tom. Care. Real quick before we go, uh, plugs, where can people find you? Pretty much Facebook. Uh, there's a TommyMcLaughlin.com website. But uh, yeah, me on Facebook which is yeah, Tommy McLaughlin as well uh, on there. Uh, as I told you guys earlier, you know, like Tom McLaughlin is the writer director and Tommy is like the guy that does the Facebook, you know, is in the band, you know, does podcasts, whatever. So I, I don't know, that's another part of this that weird split personality of mine. All right. Well, thank you again, man. We, we really appreciate it. this sure. was a fun one. Great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed, you know, talking with you guys too. Thank you, man. Have a good, have a good day.
You too. Bye-bye. You're with your baby.